If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, and we will be in verses 1 through 17 today. Uh, chapters 40 and 41, which we have just looked at, form an introduction of sorts to the, this second major section of Isaiah that runs from chapter 40 through chapter 55. And like any good introduction, it lays out some themes that continue to be highlighted in the chapters that follow. Let me remind you of some of the truths that we saw in chapters 40 and 41. Our God is the creator of all things, filled with immeasurable and incomparable power, and he cares for his people. And our God is the sovereign shaper of history, orchestrating all things for his glory. And in light of that, idols are less than nothing and can do nothing to save anyone. Isaiah drove home this final point in chapter 41, verse 24 and verse 29, verses that are linked together by the word behold. In verse 24, idols are seen to be worthless and those who trust them are an abomination. Look at 41, 24. Behold, you idols are nothing and your work is less than nothing and an abomination is he who chooses you. And then in verse 29, idols are similarly described as empty wind. Verse 29, behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Like those of Isaiah's day, so many of the things our hearts are bent towards are worthless refuges. We, we lean on them like a, a railing on a, balcony, on a balcony only to feel them collapse underneath us and send us falling to the ground. The things that promise us peace, security, and joy bring us stress, uncertainty, and misery. The people we trust and the systems we think will make everything right fall over, fail over and over again. So what's the solution to all these worthless refuges? Where, where might the hope of the nations and the hope of our souls be found? What can we lean on? What's gonna save us from falling? In the first three words of chapter 42, the Lord provides the surprising answer. He says, behold again, but this time he says, behold my servant. Behold my servant. Thus begins the first of the four servant songs that form the pillars of chapters 40 through 55. The, these are songs that are found here in Isaiah 42, one through four, then in Isaiah 49, one through six, Isaiah 50, four through seven, and most famously in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. In the first 39 chapters of, of his book, Isaiah shows that the Messiah, that the Messiah is the Davidic king. But in these songs, we're introduced to him as the suffering servant. And while that's familiar to us, we should, we should step back and try to understand just how surprising these descriptions of the Savior of the world are. We understand a ruler who is a lion, but not one who is a lamb. We understand a deliverer who comes to wage war and conquer, but we don't understand one who comes to suffer and die. We understand a king but we don't understand a servant. And so these songs help us understand how God will save all nations and even more so who God is going to send to save all people. This first song gives us a, a bit of an answer to who the Messiah is, but it focuses more specifically on what he will do, namely that he is going to bring 
justice and also on how he's going to do that. And the response of our hearts to who he is and what he will do is praise. The song of the servant causes us to sing a new song of praise to our God, a song that declares what we are hoping in, that a song that stabilizes us in that hope, and a song that, that calls others to find their hope in the Lord. So let's think about this passage around a very simple, big idea. Rejoice, because God's servant can save the world. Rejoice, sing, be happy, rejoice. Why? Because God's servant can do what no one else can. God's servant can save the world. Rejoice because God's servant can save the world. Let's read Isaiah 42, 1 through 17. The servant song proper is found in, in verses 1 through 4, and then verses 5 through 17 expand and expound on that song and our response to its truth. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light and the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Rejoice, because God's servant can save the world. As we look at this passage, I want to think about who the servant is, what the servant will do, how the servant will do it, and how we should respond. But don't let that 
mundane outline cause you to tune out? Because <laughs> I think there's deep and beautiful and wonderful truths in these verses. So first we're going to think about who the servant is. Who the servant is in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Does that sound familiar? We can go back to Isaiah 41, 8 through 10, and find almost the exact same description of God's people, of Israel, and those who trust in the Lord. Look at chapter 41, verses 8 through 10. See if you can see some similar words. But you, Israel, verse 8 of chapter 41, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest, corner, farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Very similar terminology used of God's people. So does chapter 42, verse 1 refer to Israel? Is Israel the servant? Will Israel bring forth justice for the nations? Well, they've shown over and over again that given the chance, they failed to do so. And so this verse, chapter 42, verse 1, seems to refer to one who would come and do what Israel could not do and what we cannot do on our own. This is, this is the perfect servant, upheld and sustained by the Lord. This is the one chosen to deliver God's people. This is the ultimate friend of God, the one in whom God's soul takes deep delight. Barry Webb summarizes, the servant in this passage seems to be a figure who embodies all that Israel ought to be, but is not. He is God's perfect servant. He's also different from those described in, in 41, 8 through 10, because we're told that God has put his spirit upon him. 48, 41, 8 through 10 says nothing about the spirit being on Israel, but here the spirit is on this servant. In the Old Testament, men like Moses and, and David were said to have God's spirit on them. They were servants who led and rescued God's people. But this servant is the greater Moses. He's the, the greater David. Now, for, for we who live in the light of Jesus, it's almost impossible to not see shining forth already in this passage that, that that's, that's who Isaiah is speaking about. For those with us yesterday, the words of Philippians 2 start to come to mind. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Throughout his ministry, he said that he desired to honor his father, saying with his whole life, not my will, but yours be done, and being obedient to the father to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see in his baptism that the father had chosen him and the father loved him. And also that God had sent his spirit, even at that baptism, God sent his spirit to be with Jesus. Who is the servant? It's Jesus. Jesus, who is God in, in human flesh, come to save his people. And think about this. While the description of God's people in Isaiah 41 does not include the coming of the spirit, we, as New Testament followers of Jesus, are indwelt by his spirit. And we trust in him and we lean on him. We are servants of God, upheld by, by him, chosen in him, a delight to him, and filled with his spirit. 
More connections start to be made in our minds and hearts when we see that. Connections like, while we are not the servant who brings perfect peace, that's Jesus, we are his children, indwelt by his spirit, and called to bring some measure of God's kingdom beauty here on earth as we wait for the day that he will bring it fully. We might also think about the fact that the spirit first indwelt believers on what day? On the day of Pentecost, and that's tied up with this call for all the nations to come and hope in Jesus which is what the servant is said to do here, to bring all nations to salvation. Already, you can see we're, we're talking not simply about who the servant is, but what the servant will do. Let's think about what the servant will do now. What will he do? The end of verse one through verse four emphasizes what God will do. And most simply, uh, we're told that he will bring forth justice to the nations. You see that the, at the end of verse one, he will bring forth justice to the nations. What will the servant do? Easy answer. It's three times in this passage we're told he's going to bring forth justice. It shows up again in, um, in verse 3. He will bring forth justice. In verse 4, till he has established justice in the earth. So the servant, what's he going to do? He's going to bring justice. What's the harder question? What is justice? And while we might want to just look up the definition in a dictionary or impose our ideas of justice on the, on, on the word, we need to ask what Isaiah meant by justice and what his hearers understood justice to mean. And the answer is, is multifaceted, it's not simple. But I think the surrounding context of the verses help us to under, and the verses around it help us to understand it. Uh, verses 1 through 4 tell us that he's going to bring justice, and verses 5 through 17 give us a glimpse of what this justice looks like. So in bringing justice to the nations, two thoughts about what this servant's going to do. First, he will reveal the truth that the Lord alone is God. Thinking about what justice is what, and Jesus bringing justice, it means that he will reveal the truth that the Lord alone is God. That's what justice looks like, the revelation that the Lord alone is God. Remember that the servant is seen to do what all the idols couldn't do. Remember that connection back to chapter 41. He is revealed as the only true God we can hope in and who can save us. What's at the core of what's wrong with the world? At the core of what is wrong with the world is that God is not worshiped as the only true God. It's a worship problem. God is not listened to as the source of all truth. Humans and governments and armies and false gods of all kinds are trusted in rather than God. And all of that is injustice, Isaiah says. It is unrighteousness. It is, it is not right that God is not worshiped. The desire for justice that we have seen throughout the centuries and that's in our own hearts is right because it reveals that we recognize that there's something wrong in the world. But when we seek to set things right without having the worship of God and adherence to his truth as the foundation of that justice, then as Habakkuk says, the law is paralyzed and justice is perverted. Let me say that again. If, if we're seeking to set things right, but the worship of God is not the foundation of our desire to make things right, then the law is paralyzed and justice is perverted. But the Lord, the one in verse five who has made the earth and everything in it, the one who has called us in righteousness and shapes our days as the sovereign orchestrator of history, he says in verse eight, I am the Lord. 
I'm the only God. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to anyone or anything else. God's justice is about God's glory, and justice that does not exalt God is not perfect justice. Justice that does not lead to the whole world glorifying God, as we see in verses 10 through 13, is not perfect justice. True justice and righteousness leads the nations and leads our hearts to say, the Lord alone is God. The Lord alone acts in perfect righteousness. The Lord alone knows what is true and right. The only truth of it, and only the truth of his gospel can set this world right. What's the servant going to do? He's going to bring justice, and the servant will bring justice, which means that he will, he will reveal the truth that the Lord alone is God. He will call the nations to worship God alone. What else does it mean that the servant will bring justice? It means he will restore order to the chaos caused by sin. He will restore order to the chaos caused by sin. Sin at its core is failing to worship God as God, so we see the connection between these two ideas. Uh, Motyer says of this shade of meaning of justice that it has to do with the righting of wrongs, the establishment of a just order, and it's tied to the idea that the Lord is coming to reign. We might then think of God's justice coming as God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' first advent means that justice is breaking into the world, and his second coming will establish it fully so that the knowledge and the praise of God fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, and when that happens, every ounce of injustice will be drowned out forever. As I think about this idea of of justice restoring order and bringing peace to the chaos caused by sin, a phrase from the Lord of the Rings comes to mind. It's a phrase spoken by Sam near the end of the series. And filled with relief and wonder near the end, he says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What a great phrase. What's happened to the world, he says. A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. The servant is the one who will restore order and make all the sad things of the world come untrue. And when that happens, it will be as if we've heard laughter for the first time. This, this restoration is seen in the, in the new things spoken of in verse 9, the, the newness God is declaring. It's, it's the opening of blind eyes and the release of prisoners from dungeons that's found in verse 7. It's, it's the light of the gospel going to all people, Gentiles included, found in verse 6. It's the earth-shaping changes of verse 15 where mountains and hills and rivers are transformed by the righteousness of the servant. Judgment is a part of justice, and so punishment will be doled out on all those who reject the Lord and his servant. But justice is also, verse 16, it's sight for everyone who's blinded by sin. It's light in our darkness. It's the leveling of all of our rough places. 
Brothers and sisters, understanding justice like this doesn't mean that we ignore injustice in the world. What it means is that as followers of Jesus, as followers of the servant, we are best equipped to rightly bring justice into the world as those filled with God's spirit, resting on Jesus and working for his glory. But we understand that God's word and God's glory are at the heart of justice. And justice that leads to human pride or faith in the work of our hands is not justice at all. Justice separated from the gospel truth is imperfect justice. We understand that the world is deeply broken, maybe more than everyone. We know how broken this world is. And while common grace brings some order to the chaos, we know that only Jesus, the servant, can make all things new. We are confident that God can bring justice into our world, that he can do it now through spirit-indwelt followers of Jesus. But we also know that justice will not fully come until Christ returns. So we have a healthy understanding of these things. The problem is this isn't the kind of justice that many people want because this kind of justice smashes all of our idols and gives glory to God alone. But by God's grace, there are people with eyes to see and ears to hear. They see the wonder of who God is and the amazing promise that he is going to bring order to the chaos of this world. You know, the more you think about the justice that this servant is going to bring to the world, the, the more you meditate on it, the more astounding it becomes. <laughs> That's what he's going to do. It's as if the, the Louvre, think about the Louvre in Paris and everything that's in there. I think the Mona Lisa's in the Louvre, right? Just even if that was it. Think about the Louvre and everything that's in it. And now imagine that, that it is completely destroyed. Every piece of, of art, all of the priceless works are either burned or shredded. The building itself is reduced to rubble. And now imagine that someone comes and says, I'm gonna make everything right again. <laughs> I'm gonna restore all of it. In fact, when I'm done, it's gonna be more glorious than it was before Ian. We look at that person and we say, they're crazy. That's impossible. But what if they could? If they could do it, well, they deserve all the glory that we could give them, right? This kind of justice, this setting of everything right, it sounds too good to be true. And we've been told that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? <laughs> it sounds nearly impossible to accomplish. So how is the servant going to do this? How, he's gonna, how is he gonna pull this off? And if he, if he does pull it off, are we gonna get crushed in the process? So think with me third about how he will do it. How the servant will do this, how he will bring justice. I wanna think about it in terms of the means by which he will do it and the manner in which he will do it. So first, the means. We might just say the strength. Where's the, where's the power gonna come from? The answer is simple, right? He's empowered by the all-powerful God who shapes history. He's empowered by the God of chapters 40 and 41. In verses five through nine, God is speaking to the servant. That, that's who God's talking to. He's talking to the servant of verses one through four. And God says to the servant, he, he assures the servant that he's going to give him the strength to accomplish this justice. Verses five and six, recall chapters 40 and 41. And we see that the, the, Lord, the Lord can do whatever he wants. 
His power is immeasurable and he is the sovereign shaper of history. God has called the servant. God will be with the servant, holding his hand and helping him and the servant will live for the glory of the father. We could go back to verse one and remember that the servant works in the power of God because he is filled with the spirit of God. But it's even more astounding because we find out in the New Testament, the servant isn't just filled with the spirit of God. The servant is God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is sent by the Father. He is God himself, and he can do whatever he pleases. And what he pleases is to glorify the, the Father and to restore order to the chaos of the world. His pleasure is to bring forth justice. That's what he wants to do. That's the means. How's he gonna do it? Because he is God. But but how is he going to do it? What's the manner in which he will do it? And when you ask that question, you get to the heart of this passage because everything changes. We're reminded that, we're reminded that this, this one who will bring justice finds his core identity in the title servant. Not tyrant, not dictator, not despot, servant. We know how those guys would accomplish great things. Israel had seen that. They'd trusted in the armies of Egypt. They'd feared the armies of, of Assyria. They'd been shaken by the kings around them. Those rulers take everything by force and by power. So Isaiah makes it clear that the servant will bring forth justice unlike anyone ever has or ever will. How's he gonna do it? And you, you just meditate on verses one through four and you see he's not going to shout or lift his voice. We all know that trick, right? <laughs> That's how you get things done. Yelling and screaming and intimidation. Not Jesus. That's not to say Jesus didn't know how to raise his voice, but when he raised his voice, he did it so he could announce the life-giving message of repentance and faith. Not to force people into submission. We're told that a bruised reed and a, and a, a, a fainting wick he will not quench. A bruised reed that seemed useless, a fainting wick that was all but done burning, he would not break that. He would not snuff it out. There's a lack of aggression, a lack of domination in the servant. Most rulers trample over the weak, but Jesus, Jesus cares for the weak. He cares for the weakest, for the outcast, for the children, for the ones we cast to the side as worthless. Jesus fills his kingdom with them. He fills his kingdom with the poor. He fills his kingdom with people who mourn, with people who are persecuted, with people who are hungry. I'm reminded of David when he flees Saul for the first time and who comes to him? It's all the people who had lost hope. They're the ones that come to David. And that's who comes to Jesus. He will bring justice, we're told uh, in, in verses three and four, he will bring justice faithfully, meaning he's not gonna wear out. He's not gonna get discouraged. The things that deter and defeat others will not deter and defeat him. He will beat every obstacle to accomplish his justice, including death and hell. Like a woman in labor, verse 14, he perseveres through whatever pain might come so that he can bring forth justice and salvation into this world. This servant brings justice unlike anyone ever has. Think about our own day. Think about the way that justice is being sought. 
it's sought through power. It's even sought through destruction, whether it be street justice or storming the Capitol. Such shows of power, they don't bring the justice that's talked about here. And yet, how often we are deceived, how often the church has been fooled into thinking that attaching ourselves to worldly power is the way to spread the kingdom, or seeking worldly strength is the means of growth. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus went out of his way to avoid being attached to any worldly power. He humbled himself and he took on weakness on purpose. When we start to think that worldly power is the way to build the kingdom, we've lost sight of the servant who saved us. We might be building a kingdom, but it's not Jesus's. We might be seeking justice, but it's not the kind that brings him glory. This passage Verses 1 through 4 is where Matthew turned in in Matthew 12 as he considered Jesus' ministry, especially the part where he was telling people not to tell anyone about what he had done, where he's trying to, to, to not let his fame spread, what many people call the messianic secret. When, when, when Matthew is thinking about the messianic secret, he comes here. Because the messianic secret seems so counterintuitive to us. If Jesus is the Messiah, why not tell everyone? Why not spread your fame? Well, because Jesus was not about bringing the good news of the kingdom in the way that others spread their kingdoms. If Jesus comes in power, he attracts powerful people. But he came for lost sheep and lost coins and lost sons. He came for bruised and broken people. He came for sick people who know that they need a physician. He came as a broken reed so that he could save broken reeds. And could anything be more counterintuitive to bringing in his kingdom of justice and glory than dying? Dying the most humiliating death possible on the cross. That's how he brings his kingdom in. And yet it's, it's the death of Jesus that saves we, are, we who are dead. It, it's the humiliation of Jesus that restores we who are filled with shame. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus that, that the world, it's because of the death and re- resurrection of Jesus that the world has hope of salvation and that you and I have hope of salvation. If Jesus comes in power, he crushes us all. He will come in power and he will crush all of his enemies. But for now, he comes as this servant. He comes in, in humility so that he can save us. And he saves us not through power, as the world knows it, but through faith. He saves us not through strength, but through weakness. What about us? Well, how should we respond? We respond, verse 10, by singing. We sing a new song. We sing a song of praise to Jesus, the servant who alone can save us, the only one who can save the world. And we sing it so that the nations can hear. We sing it as we humbly serve everyone. We sing it as we show mercy to the weak and the broken. We sing it as we proclaim the good news of the gospel to everyone who will hear, and even to those who refuse to hear.
So think on this servant. Think on the justice that he brings, a justice that glorifies God, a justice that sets all things right, that makes all the sad things come untrue one day. And how does he do it? He does it in weakness. Does it not by yelling. He does it not by breaking. He does it not by crushing. He does it by serving, by humbling himself. So therefore, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice because God's servant can save the world. Rejoice because God's servant has saved the world. Rejoice because God's servant will fully save the world one day. Let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray and we will sing. Father, we pray that you would take these words and help us to see you as you truly are so that we can praise you as we should. Lord, help us to see you as you are so that we can be shaped more into your likeness. Lord, I pray that you would imprint this servant song of who Jesus is on our hearts so that we would know that this is who he is to us that he is the one that has saved us and will bring justice. And also, Lord, that we would grow to look more like him. We'd look more like him in our, in our homes and in our jobs, and in everyday life as we're walking around. Lord, that we would be servants that reflect the true servant, Jesus, who has come. Father, there's a longing for justice in our world. Help us to rightly reflect what true justice is, a justice that glorifies you and a justice that recognizes that only you can set all things right. Or we long for the day that you will. Help us to, in the midst of, of waiting for that, that we would rejoice knowing that you can you have and you will save the world. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.